Directivism. Anyway, here's Director Peace Theater. Hey, everybody. Hey, Adam. Hey. Adam. Hey, me. You, you think we uh, should be worried about the guy who intros us? I probably... <laughs> I probably shouldn't even think about life, it. His life is very, uh, it's getting worse. It seems like it's getting a lot worse. Yeah, maybe we should talk to someone. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> as he said, this is Director Peace Theater. Uh, this is a show where two directors basically examine different movies and discuss the bag of tricks of the movies and why they're pretty good movies. Probably sleeper hits. Mm. Um do you uh, want to add anything to that, Adam? No, no, I no, I I love describing how a thing's a sleeper hit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. that's basically that's the that's the gist. And so uh, we typically take an episode, um, and this is an Adam episode. But I'm Abe Epperson, one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined with Adam. Introduce yourself. I'm Adam uh, Ganser, and this is an Ummy episode. <laughs> And it's a him episode. Uh, and what I mean by that is he's going to basically tell us a theory today about a film that he recently watched. And yeah, take it away, man. What are we yeah. talking about today? Right. So uh, today's episode is about the movie The Descent, mm. uh, a movie I've seen only three times now. I, I watched it twice for this and I'd that seen it once higher before. Than I thought you would have seen this movie. See, it's not an Adam film in my head. Not at all. No, no. And I, I try to pick things that aren't Adam films for this mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's because it's more fun for me to like think like a director with a film I wouldn't normally watch. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this one though, uh, this is like a shout out to our boy Julian because he's the guy that introduced me to this film and he loves uh-huh. it. And uh, I just I, I was watching his Instagram stories, and I was like, "Oh yeah, The Descent. I should watch that again." And that's uh, hilarious. And content was born. You know, mm, mm. <laughs> go on. <laughs> <laughs> the origin story of content. That's what you're yeah. here for. Hell uh, yeah! Hell, hell yeah! Hell yeah! That is the appropriate uh, <laughs> statement of acclaim for this movie, Abe. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, because the movie The Descent is a uh, is a story of six women who, uh, as presumably sort of a, a yearly gathering slash a an, an exercise in group mourning, <laughs> decide mm-hmm. to take a trip into an unexplored cave network. Uh, although they think it's an explored cave network, it turns out it is not. And uh, they get trapped down there, and uh, things go worse than that. Uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty dark, dude. It's yeah. a dark film. It's very dark, but but it's also not. Uh, it's not like a like a spooky supernatural kind of dark. It's like a like a tension dark. I would argue, even though there are monsters in this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, there. It it takes a while for the monsters to get here. Yeah, uh, and I don't want to. I don't. I, I have a little thing I want to say about the monsters, but. So this movie is is widely considered one of the better horror movies. It's kind of endured. It's had a sequel. Um, mm. And it's sort of, there's a little bit of a cult following to it. Like people get pretty pumped about it. It's an English film, which is a thing that I think is interesting. And uh, my thesis about it is that The Descent is a movie that shows how practical directing decisions, like decisions mm. that a director makes based on practicality, can actually make... Uh, a film rise in artistic prowess. In this case, it's the it's the pragmatism that made it an artistic success. Uh, that is, is. Go ahead. Yeah, I 
I watched it, and that was my takeaway as well. So I'm glad we're kind of simpatico in mm-hmm. that. I'm surprised you didn't start off with uh, how much do you know about Neil Marshall, the director of the film? I don't know a lot about him. I do know that he directed the most recent Hellboy, which was uh, a mixed reviewed film. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was nominated for a Golden Raspberry actually for the worst director. So <laughs> well, good, good, good on that. Yeah. No, he's actually. Um, just a little, because I've actually been following his career a little bit because he's done a few things that I've gone like, oh, all right, you're pretty. You piques your interest. You're not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you pique my interest. And this film definitely was the first one that did that, being sure. like 2005, I think. Uh, recently, we we watched on our movie night. Uh, we watched Doomsday. Uh, which is a wild film, and I suggest anyone who's into like apocalypse, you know, movies look into it. Uh, he is probably most famous beyond his film career is his television career, right? Because he basically was one of like Alex Graves was another. There was like three main directors for the most seasons of Game of Thrones. Right. That did the big episodes. Like he did uh, Blackwater and Watchers on the Wall. And both of those are basically long, continuous fight scenes. Um, he also did like Constantine, Hannibal, Westworld, The New Lost in Space on Netflix. Like, so he. He's so when you say practicality, he clearly works on stuff that like he he stretches his money. Oh, definitely, really effectively, definitely. really well. Like, and uh, he's yeah. a good example of he's a good example of what mastering the craft means uh, mm-hmm. as a director. Like there, we sort of, when we venerate directors, we're often talking about sort of uh, vision, and I'm going to put that in quotes when a person sort of has a way of looking at a thing that we haven't seen before or can tell a story in a way that feels uh, new or original or whatever. But that's not actually what makes a director good at their job. Uh, right. Like That's not actually the craft. That's more uh, the artistry that's built on the craft. And this guy, at least in this movie, is a, a very solid craftsman. And we're going to talk a little bit about a few things that he does uh, and why yeah, I want to know what you mean so exactly by that. So yeah, let's yeah. dive in. I know. <laughs> You're, I like it. I can see that you both agree and also are like, but I'm still going to stab you. I'm still, I, oh, I, yeah. I got a, I got a sword ready for you. <laughs> yeah, you know me, baby. <laughs> I know you. It's always with the swords. Embra- and <laughs> embrace me with one hand to stab me with the other. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think this is actually a great topic and I'm yeah. really, uh, I'm really excited to hear what your take on Thank it you. is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I think you, you, I find you, sir, a practical director, a pragmatic. Yes, uh, uh, often, type. often. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. I, I do, especially since, especially at Cracked. Uh, there was a lot of times where I would make decisions that were basically like, "Okay, what is the thing that makes this clear?" And like, mm-hmm. that's the decision mm-hmm. we would make. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I rarely would make a decision that was purely for like flourish. Uh, because mm. we didn't have a lot of money, so I wouldn't do that stuff. Um, mm. And usually I'd build a project around one or two specific things that were like, this is the big flourish moment. Mm. Um, like and, set pieces, if yeah, you will. Uh, right, Not because, necessarily like a space, like in some 
features a set piece is sometimes like the big sequence at the stadium or something like that. Uh, We had to find set pieces that were like the game we're playing and the polish of the seek of the sketch is X. Right. You know, like I need it to be clear. I need to not get in the way. That's the thing that you often talk about, which is sort of a directorial transparency, like a director Mm. who doesn't get in the way with a lot of like clever shit, Uh, which, which this director is very good at that. Um, but also, like, I would, uh, like, so a good example, just so everybody understands, is, like, it, people who are, remember our work at Cracked, is, like, Starship Icarus was a series that I directed. And uh, when I was designing this, I basically designed it around the first episode has to be the most action-heavy, and we're going to build the set so that I can fly through the window. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do, that's mm-hmm. the one big thing we're going to do in this show, is we're going to actually fly through the window once. Uh, and so we had to build the set accordingly, and it was a pretty big undertaking uh, for and it and there were some compromises along the way, but essentially, like that was the big expense. Uh, yeah, and we didn't do a lot of builds. No, 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 uh, we never built stuff. Uh, we that we built that, and then Galactic War Room, and I don't even know if we ever built another set after that, did we? I built uh, I built Doctor Sewer's Halloween. Oh yeah, one. yeah, yeah. That which I liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That was awesome. Right. So building a set, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, building a set means that you're designing around uh, some very specific decisions. So before we... I I don't want to get in the the weeds too deep yet. The reason I chose this film is because I wanted to do an episode that was a little bit more uh, just sort of like, why does this work? Like like just sort of Mm. taking it apart and doing the watchmaker theory. And uh, to do that, I think you have to sort of acknowledge a few things about The Descent, and that is that it's not like a perfect movie uh, mm-hmm. at all. It's not a perfect movie, so I'm not holding it up as like, wow, this thing's amazing. It's not. It's not The Shining. Um, it's mm-hmm. not even It Follows. Like, it's not that good, but it's like a pretty solid movie. Um, but so there are some things that are not great from the directing in it. For instance, I think the acting is kind of spotty here and there. Did you uh-huh. did you feel that way when you watch it? Uh, I thought it was very subdued. Um, I thought that some of the performances, as is true with an ensemble cast, I didn't get as much of a great picture of each of the characters yes. as I wanted because it's also a horror film. Yes. So you kind of present them and then you start knocking them out like down like flies. Correct. Uh, and uh, it's kind of asking it's a type of movie that's both a horror film but it's kind of asking you to get fall in love with some of these characters it wants um, you it wants you to be like oh that's what would happen to holly you know what I mean? it wants you to think <laughs> yeah. that but i don't yeah, think I, that uh, yeah and it's also because it's why i think horror films often deal with like very available ar- archetypes yes because they want to just be like yeah that he's he's like the nerd type or he's like the jock type right no uh no if there's any form of density or um continued integrity of that uh like oh i'm a jock but i also have this you know aspect of my personality or whatnot um it's usually uses it as a launch point and it's you know, it's not that there's a, they're always one dimensional, but you know, it's like a tried and true archetype of a character, and that's I think why they do that because they know that they want us to feel like at any time any one of these people can go. Right. It's shorthand. Uh, it's so that they don't have to do the work. But mm-hmm. like to contrast, 
if you really wanted to do a great job with understanding each of these characters, this would have been a, like an anthology or something. You know, because it, yeah. it, it's just, it's very hard you to just need know. More time. Right, these are all sort of uh, similar women in terms of age, in terms of ethnic background. Like, uh, they, it's hard to tell them all apart with one sort of 10-minute sequence where we meet them. That's tough. Uh, but yeah. th- that's what yeah. he did. And, and so I think the movie does suffer a little bit because of that, particularly when, when we start to meet the monsters, like one of the major... T- turning points in the movie is a character sprints down a cavern to get out of the to get out of a like sort of a they're trapped in this one cave area so she runs into the light in another one which causes her to plummet uh you know like 30 feet down and break her leg and it's like well then you know mm. she's toast and it's one of those things where you're just like none of these people would ever do that like i can't even imagine how that could happen right and right right the movie because it's so short on time basically reduced this woman to bad decision making adrenaline junkie and mm. so we don't so we don't feel like a ah oh, man like instead you're like all right like you, you feel a little skeptical about it and that's you know that's not great um there are movies that do this successfully but most horror movies have this problem when they have like five or six people mm. uh so mm-hmm. that's not great um they also there's some writing problems in it too. Uh, the two that really stand out to me that I think are worth mentioning are that it hangs on two inconvenient things. One is remembering a look between Juno, who's sort of the antagonist figure, and Sarah's husband, and being like, "Oh, something's up there." Like you right. have to you have to really remember that because it's like an undercurrent for the whole movie, mm-hmm. and I don't know that that really works. Um, that's the first yeah. that's the first thing and then the other load bearing thing that kind of doesn't really work is Juno in the midst of stabbing a bunch of cave goblins uh accidentally stabs one of the six women and doesn't quite kill her she sort of lives for about an hour after that um mm-hmm. although she's stabbed like in the throat in the throat yeah. with a pickaxe pretty, yeah pretty and it's tough. an accidental death but right then beth doesn't de- or sorry then juno doesn't deal with it very well she lies about it and she lies about it but it's also one of those things where like anybody could have understood how this happened you know like it wasn't oh, yeah. su- it wasn't suspicious at all that she did that it was like she had just been like killing a crawler you know yeah. and it's like this is otherworldly i'd be in crazy predator prey mode i think uh, yeah and i think even i could see you can see yourself doing this because you know happenstance and accidents and it's one of those unforgivable things and i think that's this is the part of the pitch that made this movie get made yes yeah probably it's, but it's, it's like it's the thing that makes it's this movie the hook. really it's the hook it really yeah <laughs> i i agree i mean hook uh but yeah. i but it, it also i think doesn't work uh, mm. I don't think I don't think it's great. I think that part, which is you know, again the part in a boardroom that people get really uh, they get really sexy for, is mm-hmm. like that hook moment. And I would say that the hook doesn't really work in this movie. You don't want to you don't want to fuck that moment. Not, as much. not really. the The premise yeah. of it, the 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 situation, to me is mm-hmm. enough. It's an excellent situation for a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like it is an incredible section, and er, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But so those two things. Uh, I think it's safe to say like they don't really work and they are that is the, the director slash writer's fault uh, mm. so I'm not saying that this is 
excellent. Um, but it still works because the director makes some very simple decisions about clarity. Uh, like, so for instance, the premise, as we were just saying, the premise is a can't lose horror movie idea because they're trapped in a dark place. It's like, it's, that is the perfect situation to make a horror movie in and somehow hadn't really mid made. They hadn't really made a movie like this before. Uh, right. which is crazy. And so that alone is like, on a fundamental level, as long as the director is competent, this is going to be a good movie. Um, so there's that. But also, uh, he makes some practical decisions about how to tell this story within that context that are simple, but they also really make it sing. So I'm going to dive into a few of them. Um, to do that, I'm going to get a little technical, and uh, so I want to make sure that if I'm if there's ever a point where I'm not clear about something technical, Abe, make sure you jump in mm. and, and get it clear you for everybody. It. Thank you. Because the first one is actually the hardest one to understand. And that is this director is very good and very practical with his choice of lenses. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of lenses and like lens length that you use to, to tell a story in a movie. Um, the best way to understand this concept, by the way, if any of you are trapped at home, let's say, um, is go watch the first sequence of Indiana Jones, uh, the very first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and watch the moment where Indiana Jones is running away from the uh, tribesmen, right, the tribal figures, and he's trying to get to the plane, and it's, Jock, start the engine, right? Just that whole scene. Because yeah. that is the scene that I watched in film school to learn this concept, um, one of the things that you'll notice about it is that it's very hard to tell how far away the tribal people are from Indiana Jones, because what's happening is Steven Spielberg is cutting between two very different lens lengths. So, mm -hmm. for instance, he's using what you might call a wide-angle lens when he shows the overheads or the big wides of Indy running away from the tribal people, and they seem like they're you know like 200 yards away, right? They seem very, mm -hmm. very far away. Then he'll cut to a telephoto or long lens, and suddenly Indiana Jones is running over a hill, and it seems like he's not moving very fast, and the tribesmen are like literally, it seems like inches behind him, like feet behind mm -hmm. him. You're like, oh my God, they're right on his tail, right? And so mm -hmm. you don't know, because he's intercutting between those two different lens lengths, you don't really know how far away they are. And that's an intentional decision by Steven Spielberg. And it's a good mm. example of the two kinds of lens lengths that I wanted to compare. So the first one is the wide-angle lens, which is the one that Spielberg uses to tell sort of the big, wide, football field length shot of Indy running from them. Um, yeah, and I love uh, just a, a bit on this. Sure. Uh, it's also the way in which Spielberg mixes them um, uh, is a kind of... Like, he... he this is That's a guy who understands palette, of lenses very much and what i mean by that is that uh he's using the lenses as like a brush to you know paint the image that he wants you to see but he also understands that he just came from like in terms of like uh when you watch him going into the cave and exiting in the ball sequence and stuff like that uh he is already in a wide angle yes. or a w wide lens format. Like yes. he's shooting every, everything on like a 25. So our entire, the beginning of the film, you've been in this wide world. 
it would be super jarring to all of a sudden show that shot of like looking over the hill yeah. where he, you know he's uh, he's running at camera kind of like a Monty Python bit and they're all watching and like you said you can't see the difference between them but because he kind of preempts it by like jumping back into the longer format longer lens formats like he he kind of gets us ready for it and I think that that's something that's not trivial I think that that's intentional uh, absolutely uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up I think I think you're right. He's uh, so good at does this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He's so good at that. Like Spiel, that's again one of the reasons why Spielberg is potentially the greatest director we've ever seen, but certainly one of them uh, is that he can he can very quickly and easily make huge decisions, like jumps between like styles like that, and it works. Mm-hmm. And and you're you yeah. you don't question it. Most movies and most filmmakers do not make that kind of a decision. In fact, in recent years, we've seen a lot of films get shot with, like, basically a very limited, specific lens palette. Um, So, like, movies like The Revenant uh, or Mm. Birdman um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, basically all those Inuritu films, they are all Mm. shot on what we would call a wide lens, right? Super wide. Yeah, very wide lens. So, wide lens, the way it works is it gives us, like, a larger field of view and a wider depth of field, which means a lot more elements remain in focus in the picture right so it's not one of those uh it's not one of those lens lengths where it's like a very soft out of focus background it feels a little bit closer to human vision Mm -hmm. uh and it has a lot of different effects one of the things that you often use wide angle lenses for is uh to sell camera moves uh, because you feel camera movement Mm -hmm. particularly movement that's uh going straight at or away from uh, the subject, you feel those moves a lot more dynamically when they're mm-hmm. on a wide lens. Um, whereas if you were moving directly toward an object on a, on a long lens, you would not feel that move as much, which is why the Indiana running over the hill part works, because it's on a long lens. So um, that's what a wide lens is. Now, I, Go ahead. You're absolutely right. I am going to be a dick. <laughs> I love this already. I'm so excited. Uh, technically, it it depends. It it has to do with the formula. Uh, it with has to deal with how the glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's f stops, but that's true with both types of lenses. Mm-hmm. The discrepancy, though, is that wide lenses, uh, the closer you get, the uh, the the more. Uh, the the more I guess narrow uh, focus uh, in the de- in terms of the depth of field will turn into pinpoint. You know, right. like if you take like a very wide lens and focus to the closest minimum focus, uh, that that could be on some lenses like a millimeter. You know, uh, less true on longer lenses. Uh, so it definitely depends on where the subject is, but you're right. If it's anywhere in like the normal focal plane, like 15 feet, depending on the lens, you know, like, uh, you're going to see everything a lot more in focus. And, um, and for our, for our lay people so that we don't get, I, cause you and I both agree that we don't want to get like super like, and then you got to get the right lenses, like Zeiss's and primes, you know, like, no, right. Nobody wants that. to talk about that. Right. So like, 
Uh, just for what is this the glass podcast? <laughs> oh, hey, you're, you're hearing the hits here for me. That's a three hundred thousand dollar joke making, right there, baby. Making lens jokes. Come on. <laughs> All right. No, so just for the layperson, I want you to have like really obvious movies and images in your brain to compare them. So I would use The Revenant or Birdman, movies that have like very wide angle. Yeah. Uh, lenses because again what happens is you can see more of the you can see a wider angle of view so more Mm -hmm. actual background if you will Mm -hmm. and uh, more of that will be in focus and when you get really close to the subject sometimes you'll see what's called warping like uh, like almost like a fisheye lens right but not quite uh, yeah, and vignetting yes if you want another example of this you can go watch uh, the series rom.com because I shot, especially <laughs> season two, I shot on a very wide lens. Uh, and mm. season two, I really committed to it. It was like, I basically only shot on like a 25. Um, and so sometimes say, and you'll... Wide... What's that? Go no, ahead. No, no. Uh, well, I was just saying, I'd say wide is like a pretty, like most most filmmakers in the the feature racket now are... Yes, currently. Now, yeah. I mean, because it, it's been a traditional TV thing. It's a commercial yes. thing to shoot telephoto because you want to flatten the space. So you just are working with a 2D image, essentially. Right. But, um, you know, like Wes Anderson, Spielberg, yes. you know, like uh, Tom Hooper, Stanley Kubrick. I mean, these guys are all wide-angle lens guys they are. for life. That you know? is correct. And they also seem to be like some of the more prolific and uh, interesting filmmakers as well. I don't know what that correlation is or if it's even involved, but it definitely makes good pictures. I'll give it that. It, it has the. It adds to the feeling of uh, scale and scope. Is another. Is mm-hmm. it's another thing to say about it. Okay, so I think we understand yeah. what wide lenses are now. Let's talk a little bit about what we might call long lenses or telephoto lenses. So long lenses or telephoto lenses are essentially when you are. You are creating a narrower depth of field, or shallower depth of field, and a narrower field of view. Meaning you're seeing less mm-hmm. of the, uh, you're seeing less subject, less background, and yeah. less. You have less range of uh, subject that's going to be in focus, which then creates that feeling of uh, a soft, out of focus background. And what happens is, it, because you're on a longer lens, you end up sort of compressing. Uh, objects in 3D space together so that it feels a little bit more like a flat painting. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of filmmakers have used that to their advantage. One of the more famous examples of it is actually Stanley Kubrick's movie Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. he used a lot of telephoto lenses to create the feeling of being in a flat picture. There's a lot of flat pictures, like fo- like almost like photographs. Uh, and he created that by using a long lens. Uh, the very first Hunger Games movie, as I recall, was shot on a pretty long lens, too. It sort of created uh, what you might call a more poetic look to it, uh, and they kind of abandoned it after the there first was a, movie. It was also in like the, the mid to late 2000s. It was everywhere then, yes. We had people fall in love with telephoto for a while, mm-hmm. just, and that happens. That's just trends of movie making. Someone made it, and I think it might be... Nolan did a lot of it, you know, in like Batman Begins. Like, there's a few movies that become zeitgeisty, and other filmmakers take the nod and run with it. That's a hundred percent true, and I can't name exactly where it started, uh, like what, like what was what began that trend, but it was definitely the thing for a little while. 
Um, yeah. There are movies that I remember that were uh, very much based around the telephoto lens. Like there's a movie called Roger Dodger um, that I remember being really telephoto. Uh, can mm-hmm. you think of any others offhand that are like, oh yeah, that one's like super telephoto? No, but uh, like think of it as the best way I think of it as is like. You know how in movies fairly recently, like there's like think Marvel movies, like why, why is it all of a sudden that we decided that like things should be very orange or amber key light and also very like cyan or teal, like because the color contrast between those two colors are very effective because, uh, they're literally, literally opposite on the color wheel. Um, they ch- we chose some movie did that and for like a decade we, were we like, decided that we're gonna light movies that way yeah, yeah and so it gave it this effect it gave it this look right um and it's that kind of trend that i think you're talking about but i can't think of like long lens movies of recent no i think uh, i want to say particular. that i want to say collateral is a movie that has a lot of telephoto lenses in mm. it because of all the taxi driving scenes Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I know there's older ones, you know, you think of like Robert Altman and like yes, Nashville or something. Yes, there you but, go. Uh, there you go. Uh, but it comes and goes. Nothing. It comes and goes. Yeah. So nothing really recently. No. Now I don't want to say, so again, just to, so everybody understands the concept. So when you're on a telephoto lens, what happens is it compresses the space, right? So it makes it feel like there's less distance between a thing that's like, say, 50 yards from camera and a thing that's 100 yards from camera. It's going to sort of mm-hmm. compress those two things so they seem much closer together. Again, see the Indiana Jones exhibit uh, when he's running over the hill. That's what a long lens does. So mm-hmm. now, of course, movies are shot with a variety of lens lengths, all kinds of things between and so on. But in general... Uh, the stylish movies of the day tend to sort of sit in one or the other of those sort of lens length ranges. Um, And that's a pretty common thing. So Mm. this movie, the thing that makes it so interesting about this particular movie is the, the point, the horror of this movie largely comes from claustrophobia, right? Like it's a movie Mm -hmm. about being trapped in a cave. So Mm -hmm. you would think because it was about being trapped in a cave, what kind of lens package would this guy pick? A telephoto package because it compresses the space. It makes things feel like they're more pressing together. And yet he didn't shoot that way, even though like stylistically you would think that's the one. No, he shot on yeah, a wide convention lens. Convention says right. do it that way, and he doesn't. He did it on a wide lens. And why does he do it on a wide lens? So here are the reasons. The first is because a lot of the scenes of people being trapped, they actually need to crawl toward camera. Right, So because they have to crawl toward camera, you need to feel like they're making progress. Mm, and if you, were to sh- if you were to shoot that on a telephoto lens, it would feel like they, they were a little speck. Yeah, yeah, it would feel like they were crawling forever and never making any progress. And you know how that would feel? Like, a, like an unending nightmare. <laughs> that would be the worst feeling <laughs> yeah. in the world. And it's, the director understands that the audience needs to feel the relief of occasionally watching their heroines escape for a moment. And if he shot on a telephoto lens, that could not happen. Um, So the other advantage that it gives is, obviously they didn't shoot in a cave, right? There's no way you could actually make this movie in a cave. It's not possible, because it would be Mm. incredibly dangerous, and uh, because you would have to either make these pathways or find them, and that would take years in itself, just to find all these little pathways to shoot these scenes. Can you even imagine? 
That'd be mm-hmm. a nightmare. Uh, the danger is the real reason, but also just the inefficiency of time and money is another. You couldn't get power down there, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, to make a movie like this, you have to build a set, right? You have to build a set, which means mm-hmm. that because the guy shot this on a wide lens, he is able to use production design to limit or compress the field of view more. And so that's a that's a director who understands he's got two pieces to use to tell the story of uh, these people being trapped under the rocks. There's the part that's the camera part, and then there's the designing the set part. And he decided, mm-hmm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to design these little narrow spaces and shoot it all on a wide lens, and it's going to feel like the claustrophobia is the same as though it was telephoto, but it's not. And uh, th- he, yeah. that's a director who he, knows his yeah. who knows his craft. That's a smart decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works in simpatico with lighting, though I'm sure yes. you're going to talk about that. So oh, yeah, yeah. I have a whole... <laughs> De- uh, definitely, I have a whole thing uh, with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, all, this is all working in the old Abe brain. Oh, good. Okay, I'm glad. So um, the other thing that the wide-angle lens allows him to do is, and it's subtle, but if you watch the film, there's actually a fair number of tiny little dolly moves. Like you can actually mm. get on a, a tiny little dolly, like maybe like a, like maybe something as small as a speed rail, um, mm. and slightly move in camera, which adds to the tension as they're crawling toward us. Again, yeah. if you were on a telephoto lens, you would not feel that move. No. That move would it would be invisible, which would mean you're basically always on a static camera. And for this movie, that's a mistake because once the monsters, the the cave goblins, <laughs> what are they actually called? Crawlers. Is that what they're called? Crawlers yeah, is, yeah. I think, the term that's used. Well, I'm going to call them cave goblins because that's what they are. Yep. So they're they're little cave Nosferatu. They really are. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they yeah. are. So once the cave Nosferatu show up, uh, then of course the director has to use a more traditional uh, sort of fractured editing and filming style to make them scary. Because I think if you mm. just saw them, uh, if you saw like lots of wides of them, you would feel like eh. You know, like, so he kind of shows little pieces of them, which is a standard horror trope. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. doesn't really work if the first half of the movie is this standard postcard telephoto shooting, and then I got to cut to all this frantic editing when the monsters show up. That would feel like two movies. Uh, Dude, I just think I... I don't know if I'm 100% on this, but I'm pretty sure one of the main filmmakers that made telephotos a thing uh, is... Uh, the Davids, the da- uh, Dan- or Danny Boyle and David Fincher, sorry. Uh, this, both of those guys use on 28 Days Later and on Fight Club, there's a lot of telephoto work. But he doesn't work exclusively. That just occurred in, He doesn't me. work exclusively, It's not does exclusively. Yeah. Because I often I'll fi- I find that directors will like make a choice like I only shoot it on a 35 yeah right but rarely do they say like I'm gonna shoot it on an 85 because telephoto I think is just useless it's, it's, it's just harder like, to work with you have to it's have, harder to work with yeah you have to have you a lot have of to distance. have a very specific and you don't get geography as much you don't get like all the reasons you're saying it, it's tough to think of a movie that is like exclusively long lens uh, it makes me really want to make a telephoto movie. That's but, uh, I yeah, would love that, to see that you do that. That just occurred to me because I was just thinking of as you were talking. I was thinking of different random shots they do. I know Twenty Eight Days Later definitely uses long lenses yeah, and stuff. More long lenses for sure, and it works with yeah, it works that, with the handheld too. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So, 
just briefly. So here, a couple other things that the lens choices work. So one of the scary things about the cave is being trapped, right? And we've talked about how the wide angle mm-hmm. lenses have helped with that. The other thing about the cave is sort of the, the unending abysses, right? These giant yeah. black abysses. That's another reason why you want to have a wide lens package because it gives you the sense of like, my God, it's like this gigantic dark kingdom in here. Um, and there's a number of times they cut to a wide like that and the wide angle lenses really sell the abyss of it all. Right. Uh, so that part's good. Now, by contrast, uh, when we shoot, when we're, when we're topside, which is the first like 20 minutes of the movie and the last like five minutes of the movie, when we're topside, though we do cut between a, a variety of lenses, we're largely on a telephoto lens or a longer lens on the top side. And I have a theory about this. I think that the top side is filmed in this sort of unattractive way to make it feel less jarring when you when they take the plunge into the cave. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think that it's a little bit of a tough story sell that they would all do this. And because they've made the, the because he shoots the earth, like the regular earth, in a long sort of murky telephoto lens, it feels less inviting to be there. And uh, therefore the caves yeah. become more interesting visually than they should have been. Uh, because he makes regular regular planet Earth look shitty a little bit, uh, right? And he does that in other ways too. But that's his lens choices he help does that it work. In an interesting way. I noticed, uh, and I hope I'm not stepping on your toes. No, go ahead. Uh, that I noticed he he's super saturated in this section. Yes, he is, and it's almost off putting because I remember the forest stuff. It's like the the forest isn't that particularly lush. But he upped the greens so much. Yes, he did. And the blues. That it's like, that feels weird. And so it's like, even though it's more saturated in what we'd expect out of vibrant colors, it kind of has this weird isolating effect where it's like, this isn't real. Yes. So I yes. Yeah. Good catch. Good catch. Well, so let's jump in because that actually brings up a whole other point that I was going to do last, but let's bring it up now because I think it's... uh, this is the perfect time for it. So the second way that the director uses what you might call practical decision-making is with color. So Mm -hmm. there are people like Pedro Almodovar, right, uh, who use Mm -hmm. color in this very expressive, artistic Mm -hmm. way. Or even like Wes Anderson, I would say, uses color in a very expressive, artistic way. For all you Pedro fans out there, baby. Yeah, all you you Almodovar heads. uh, (laughs) We're out in you right now. Yeah, Yeah, but but there's a lot of directors who are quote-unquote artists, you know, like uh, who use color expressively. This director is using color in a in a very functional way to help us understand. Number one, impart that sense of this whole thing feels not real, uh, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely true. And number two, to give us just very simple emotional connecting points uh, to help tell a story. So the first is. Uh, the color blue, um, and I'm going to include a little bit of green, but it's mostly blue. Um, and he mm. he basically shows topside almost exclusively in blue. There's very few mm. other colors than blue, and it's a very murky, uh, unattractive blue, like a cold blue. Um, mm. And in combination with the telephoto lens, it creates this sense of the world being sort of indifferent and uh mm-hmm. scary and mm-hmm. i think it again i think it helps to sell the idea that they need to take this trip uh because you need the change right like sarah's world is very uh 
very fractured and broken and remains mm-hmm. that way. I'm going to say remains that way permanently, basically, but at least the idea of this cave trip should be a fix for it, but it, even though it doesn't. Um, so I th- And I think, again, the director's just making a simple decision. We're going to tell a blue story because that makes this whole thing feel a little uh, less uh, inviting, and you feel the coldness and you feel the detachment because of it. Um, now, again, that's a little bit of a sort of counterintuitive decision because if you're making a, if you're making a horror movie, you would think that you would want to sort of make, make the status quo a more attractive place. And then they go into the cave Mm. and it's like, Oh, spooky cave. Right. And he doesn't really do that. He kind of makes the whole world. He sort of washes the whole world in this unattractive malaise and, uh, I think that's just an interesting decision that makes it, it makes us not question the world as much. It makes us accept the world more than we would have. Uh, like I can't say that this is true for sure, but imagine if he'd made like the top side just like this really poppy, attractive world up there, and then you know mm-hmm. three quarters of the way through the movie, you're watching these cave goblins. <laughs> I think I think there's yeah. a chance you might be like this movie's stupid. <laughs> You know what I mean? Uh, Almost definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it, would, it would it would feel out of tone. It would feel right. like the tone is off. Right, and s- is what color would? Yeah, discrepancy of color like that. Like it's crazy how much of a tempered hand all directors have to be with color palettes because uh, even the slightest like you love it when like a Wes Anderson or someone who's like so good with color palettes. Yeah, he's great with it. That and and following the rules where he like he picks like seven colors and it's in all scenes yep. and there's never a scene or a shot that doesn't have at least like three of them and it's like well shit when you when you have control on that level um, that is attainable getting that and forcing that through you know lying cheating and stealing to tell the truth essentially uh which i think is a godard phrase or godard saying um the idea that he's working with less than optimal budgets uh he's working on stage for a lot of it so there's elements of control but like he's he's swinging for the fences on like making the underground top side like Interplay, I agree. Work, and it's a hard thing. I'd say for the most part, it's a success. I think you're right about it's, that. It's 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 not an easy decision. It requires a kind of like a you have to have a high floor as a director to make that work. There's a lot of it's ways. Vigilance. Yeah, it's just vigilance. There's a lot yeah. of ways you can make a mistake uh, for sure. And he does a really good job of sort of effortlessly seaming these two worlds together. Um, because there's the truth is there's actually three worlds in my opinion. There's the top side, there's the caves, and then there's like the caves plus the goblins. Because I would I like, would say uh, like when it's particularly tense or something. Well, I just think the goblins sort of introduce a whole other sort of evil kingdom thing, um, and mm-hmm. he has to kind of what, what would that be? Green? Green. Well, we'll talk. Yes, a little bit. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, his next is the color of their uh, little lights. Yeah. Yes. So the the second color that he uses, and again, he's not. This is not a profound decision. Uh, underground is basically red. It's basically red there mm-hmm. the entire time, and it starts from the moment they light the first flare, um, and lasts to the very end, all the way through the blood pools and everything else. Right. So mm-hmm. red is kind of the most obvious thing you could pick for underground because uh, the obvious con- connotations of hell. 
uh, torture, mm. you know, uh, envy, all the things that are going on in this movie. Uh, it's yeah. a simple decision, but it does reinforce those things. Uh, and not coincidentally, Juno is primarily dressed in red, and she's the villain. She's the one with the betrayal. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it's, nice. I mean, and the you know, again, the director sort of he does put a little bit of red here and there. He puts some red in on Sarah's helmet, I believe, uh, to sort mm-hmm. of make it feel like less of a choice. But it's cl- it's mm-hmm. clear that she uh, that she's sort of a the demonic figure of this group, right? And yeah, and. Uh, he picked red because it makes it look like a hellscape. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, duh, right? And also it makes... So, but the, the the really smart part about it is that it it sort of marries this goblin world with the caves by giving it a sort of blood tinge. Because, you mm. know, there's moments at the, toward the end of the film where you're like, literally, they're washing, they're they're running through like a swimming pool full of blood. Like, it's just like a soup of blood. It's a lot of blood. And I think that would feel very stupid, very stupid, if it hadn't already been soaked in red the entire time. Right? So, again, that's a director finding a way to seam together these elements with one big creative decision that kind of takes some of the edge off those transitions and makes it feel like all Mm -hmm. the same world. Um, Did you see uh, Ready or Not? Yes, I did. In fact, that pissed me off about that. That movie. they that talk about lack of uh, vigilance and color palette. That they got all red toward the end. It just got a. It just and now we're in this, and I, I just like it felt wholly unmotivated. It's almost. I thought it was just because they're like, how cool would it be if she's like in like her a wedding blood dress red? and yes. like completely bloody? Yes. Right. That's cool. I thought right? the same thing. And I'm like, yeah, that is kind of cool, but also like. But why? I mean, are we just playing like I thought of an image? Let's like think how cool this image is. I guess that's movies. I, but I don't. I don't. Know. I like I don't l- different types of movies. I personally don't like movies that have that like expect you to honor a premise that they don't think is that they don't actually believe mm-hmm. in. And so, yeah. ready or not, didn't believe that. Like, what if we just had rich people hunting them? Hunting a person was enough. So they had they added all this like bargain with satan stuff that was really stupid Mm -hmm. uh yeah and it's like no just make them hunt because they're just terrible rich people what's wrong with that that's that's a fine movie like uh so i agree also the blood in any case right the blood bride thing um so this movie also did that and it's very clear to me that's what it made me think of it it's very clear to me that like horror filmmakers feel like i gotta find my own carry like i gotta make my own carry I gotta find a like a costing image. Yeah. yeah, but it's basically always Carrie, and I don't know why we are so obsessed with that. Uh, but this movie did a better job of doing it in a not stupid way. Because uh, right. the yeah by yeah. sort of de-emphasizing that decision. You know what I mean? And just the idea that when you're watching it, you're like oh, this entire sequence is bathed in green yes. or like yes. you're thinking about it in the back of your head, even if you're not actively thinking about right. it, you feel the presence of strong color palette choices as opposed to neutral choices. Or this is not a neutrally chosen no. color palette film. It's, you know? it's one very strong choice that blunts a lot of other choices. And again, mm. that's why I would say it's not actually that artistic of a choice. It's a little bit more of a practical choice. Because it's mm. it's sort of about uh, it's about taking away questions, 
taking away objections. Like when you make everything one color or one style, what you've said is everything that doesn't belong in this one style is not important. And I think that this director understood like to make this work, I have to eliminate the difference between the pools of blood and the caves themselves. Like I just need to get rid Mm -hmm. of like all those bone masses. They all got to feel like the same place and that's it. It's one place. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think Mm -hmm. that's really interesting and smart uh, and very fun. So the last color that he uses, and you brought it up a couple of times, so um, is green. He uses green a few different times, uh, always to indicate a kind of uh, delusional mania, right? So the first time we see the green sort of saturated point of view is uh, when after the accident that happens. It's the inciting incident of the film. Oh uh, right, Sarah has right, yeah, yeah. yeah the- Sarah has that vision. Right, uh, where she's like running down a dark hallway and can't quite uh-huh. get away, yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's in green, and we don't we return to it like once or twice, but we don't really return to it until the very end with a couple mm. of other women whose names I don't even remember. Uh, I just remember they were lovers. That's the only thing I remember. Uh, oh, um, do do do. It's not. Oh, it's not it? Beth. It's uh, not Juno. It's not Sarah. It's not but Sam. Uh, I think it's, it's Sam. It's and not Holly either. I don't. It's like I know all their other names. I just don't know those two. Jessica. Je- you could knows, say any name, and I'd say yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could say. Any. No, it's um. Uh, yeah, it's. I, 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 there's something I wanted. To, I did want to say in a previous section. Hit it. I thought he did a smart thing. Uh, because he knew that we we're going to have this problem. Because first off, it's a very dark film. Very and much. By dark film, uh, I don't just mean darkness in terms of the you know like uh, the topics, but it's uh, chiaroscuro uh, to use the term, like where it's almost like little p- puddles of light. Because you have to get away from the idea that technically this is all, this is all just lit in one little space near, like she's covered right, in rock. Exactly. And she just has a torch or she has like a glow stick equivalent flare. And um, that's all we see. So it's these little tiny pockets of light. And sometimes that makes people all look the same. So she or so Neil Marshall did a very interesting thing, which I thought was kind of smart that I picked up on, which is that he gave all the characters very different accents. Oh, interesting. There uh, you go. So that you could tell them apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And even after doing that, I still have problems other than like Beth, Juno and Sarah. I have a problem remembering like. Who's Sam again? Oh, yeah, that was Sam. <laughs> that was Sam, right? Or was that Rebecca? I can't even, remember. Is, Maybe was, was Rebecca Holly. one of them? Yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, it was Rebecca. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, I, I, I couldn't remember their names. I could only remember the names of the ones that uh, held, right, held right. emotional value. I mean, it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, Rebecca is the one who gets dragged back and eaten alive as Juno runs. No, they, like, <laughs> so she's literally just like, she, she's literally she's goblin fodder. just to be yeah, eaten. Yeah, goblin fodder. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they also had to have somebody die uh, by a goblin crawling upside down in the stalagmites or whatever. Uh, Ooh, yeah, I love that love too. It. So... Okay, so the green light. So the green light mm-hmm. is, I think it serves two functions. Um, and they're not, again, they're not sophisticated. They're very simple. Mm-hmm. One of them is to sort of create the e- like the, the feeling of an eerie, otherworldly, uh, unnerving thing, which is kind of how we feel about green light anyway. Right? It's a very simple mm-hmm. experience. So there's that. And it does the second thing of sort of distinguishing between the groups of women 
when we're finally, when we sort of separated and they're being hunted down individually by all the goblins, uh, you have Sarah, mm-hmm. whose face you recognize, and you have Juno, whose face you recognize, and then you have the other two who are still alive, and they're they're holding a green flare. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of a director doing two very functional things with one decision. It's, hey, things are getting crazy, and they're sort of, de- they're hearing things, they don't, like, it feels like a like a vision, almost. But also, mm-hmm. I know when I cut to them, which which scene we're in. Because this one's the green one. The other one's the red one with Juno, and then there's the red one with Sarah. So I instantly mm-hmm. know where I am. Um, and it becomes really important to know where you are if you're going to try to do any narrative te- storytelling with three people in a black, uh, un, like unknown geographic space, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just smart functional directing. And because of that, I'm able to track all three of their journeys. Uh, right. So I'm not confused. Right. So you know, again, is it the is it like a is it a Junot decision? No, but it's uh, but it's functional and it works. Um, and it gives mm-hmm. it gives rise to the very last thing I wanted to talk about. If you unless you wanted to interject. Well, I wanted to see what your thoughts on... I. It's not like I got an axe to grind, but it reminds me of a story this movie makes me think about. Like, So light is how the, you know, <laughs> the medium of photographs, right. especially taking photographs at 24 frames a second, uh, that's how that works. It's literally photons hitting a film medium or, you know, a, a, a chip sensor. Uh, and so you need light to make pictures. Truth. Right? And so anytime like movie pitch black, I'm reminded of, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like anytime there are a movie where it like literally someone in the beginning of the movie says like, there's no light down there because we're underground and there's no access to daylight, you know? And it's, so it's pitch black. Uh, there are scenes where, you know, there's no motivated light, right? you know, because like a light goes out. Or something like that. And so you should just be looking at a black frame. But that's not how we do movies, obviously. Uh, I remember having this debate on when I was uh, director of photography on Kill Me Now with the director. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Where uh, I was just like, I need to do like this, like when the lights turn off in the house, because the killer cuts the power, like uh, I got to have to, like I have to design a, a night light look that's yeah. that and then i have to design a look on top of that that's like the actual yes. lit so that i can go from one stage to another and he was just like and we just didn't have enough time and he was just like i think we can just play it with no lights and i was just you like can't so you mad. can't I was see anything so mad <laughs> i was so mad he was just like we'll do it as a bit though it will be like a bit where we just have an audio yeah. play and i was like that's the only thing i was like all right man okay but i was still like we'll make it work but i was just so it mad just, uh... and it's true it's true like he had to do that a few times in this movie where you're like where's your light coming from and uh y- you know our buddy michael cox I another do. a very talented uh director of photography yes uh, he always tells the story about David Lynch, about David Lynch talking about talking to his DP because uh, David Lynch is very, he's not cinema verte or dogma 95 or anything like that, but he's very like wants everything to be motivated and have a reason. And he asked his DP at one point, this, as the story goes, he was like, what he didn't like that. And I think it was like twin peaks or something like that. And it was like a woods scene, like at night. He was like, I don't like that there's, like, multiple moons. Like, what is that light over there? Like, where is that light coming from? 
and his and his DP it was just frustrating. He's like the same place your music's coming from, David. <laughs> Which is just it's all fucking make believe. Yeah. It's None just like I real. love the idea. None of it's real. None of this is real. Stop yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Stop it. Just stop it. I need delight. So just you know, for all the things that we like give credit and tip the hat to these uh, directors for doing these very, you know, vigilant choices. We have to remember that sometimes there is no motivation and sometimes you just have to be okay with that because you don't have to, like when you're working with an actor, you don't have to go into a scene and say, the reason I feel like you would come to camera and grab the water is because at this time you'd be doing this in your head. No. Why? Because you need to come to the camera to Right, because I need to that move, to happen, man. Because I want uh, what, what it to I happen say? for camera. Yeah. And then you tell that to actor, and the actor's like, oh, okay, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like, stop inventing reasons. Right. If there is no reason, sometimes that's okay. Well, that's I, I I, again, it, the audience is not uh, dealing in abstractions with how a scene was formed if you're telling your movie well. Uh, they're yeah, they're exactly. not thinking a single thing about that. Um, so it's you your brain is exactly where I wanted it to be because the last point I wanted to make was about story motivated lighting. Uh, mm. I think that's actually one of the genius things about this premise. Uh, aside from, I don't know how everybody else feels, but to me being trapped in a cave is like one of the most terrifying things I can imagine. Um, oh, whew, yeah. yeah. And I think, I actually think the movie gets less scary when there's goblins personally than when they're just trapped down there. Uh, that's great. To, that's my opinion. Mm. But I don't think everybody thinks that. Uh, well, I mean, I think the uh, at this point, these goblins are like we've seen a lot of monsters in the last two decades. Yeah, of and these film. ones are fine. Uh, these ones are yeah. fine, but it's not like it was like blowing my mind of like, look at these fuckers. No, you know, like we've seen. They're a guy in a costume. TV does this all the time. Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just guys in costumes. Yeah, yeah. It's it, yeah. Uh, it's not a it's not a particularly inventive beast, uh, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm willing to I was willing to accept that and I think most people are. So but the mm-hmm. but the again the other genius thing about this premise as a horror premise is that for the most part they did kind of stick with motivated lights. Um they brought down yeah, for the most they part. brought down flares and mm-hmm. flashlights and there's it's again it's a thing in video games all the time but like we're, when you don't see everything uh, when your field, the narrower you can make the field of view, the more effective it is as a horror story because everything that you're afraid of is is the thing right out of view. Um, and this movie, because of them only having those lights, does a pretty great job of of just sort of gently doing horror stuff just by the situation they're in. Um, it doesn't do a lot of stupid lighting. It doesn't do a lot of no, stupid it lighting. It's always it's motivated, or it just needs to be there, and it's not loud and in your face, and like trying to be stylized for. And that's where the color palette really, again, reinforces the story. Motivated lighting is like because it's like, look, these the the color is going to be red because that's the color the flares are, and because Mm. the color of the flare is red, uh, we kind of get away with lighting it in a way that we that couldn't actually happen. Uh, because, you know, this is one big bright light source and it's how people feel about flares. Uh, and the, and it works, you know, it's a, it's very effective and, yeah. um, most, it's not like that's the only way that this could be done. 
Like, there's a lot of ways this could be done that would be less effective. We just watched a movie last night called Dragonheart, and they had that scene down down in the cave where, like... Like, a film called Dragonheart. Like, like people like don't know. Everyone hasn't... <laughs> yeah, people don't know what Dragonheart then is. Then what the hell are you like doing in this Sean place? Connery and Dennis yeah. Quaid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Draco. <laughs> He's such an affectionate... I'm going to become a star. He's a very affectionate dragon. Uh, he really A is. very soft-hearted dragon. Anyway, so... Uh, they have a cave scene in it, and the cave scene mm-hmm. is lit in in such a worse way. Uh, and I'm not saying that to disparage anybody, but like you know, they put they clearly lit the back of the cave and stuff so you can see it. And then they have the torchlight, and it's just like we want you to be able to see in this cave. We don't want you to have a horror experience, and it just sort of uh, makes the whole thing feel like it's on a stage, right? It, it really does. Whereas this thing mm-hmm. had the burden of like we got to make it feel like it's not on a stage. Because it is on a stage, right. but you got to make it feel like it's not. And because there's only these very few story-motivated lights, it saves them all kinds of time and money on their production design. Right? Like, the production mm-hmm. designer can put up a wall of foam, and you don't know what the fuck it is. Because they've washed it over in, like, slimy, like a slimy finish, and they mostly don't light it. You know what I mean? So, like, production yeah. design gets to be smaller and smaller and smaller, and it saves them time and money because of the story of motivated lighting, um, which that yeah. sounds... Sometimes lighting well is lighting less. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, they this isn't a movie that had a billion dollars. This this movie was had to be made on a budget, and uh, that's how you make those kind of decisions creatively mm-hmm. to get the movie done, you know, because... It's also... It occurs to me also while you're talking about it that um, something that they talk about in a lot of movies is eye light. Um, a famous case is, um, if you remember the, you probably don't remember because you don't give a shit about this stuff, but uh, in like around the same time, there was uh, like 2005, uh, I believe, there they did the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I have seen that. And they actually, they actually like, I think fired the DP of the first season and brought a new guy in because the original conception of it was to be so documentary style that all the lighting had to be like practical and you do one eighties and you see that in the first and season. It was a mess. Never, then yeah, it yeah. becomes more of a traditional yeah. show after that. And it's, you know, it's still handheld, but you know, it's, it's less of that like sweeping de- direct, uh, uh, documentary style. And, uh, it's because they realized that in those emotional moments, uh, one of the very important things to a lot of people is eye light. Uh, eye light is, you know, that little ping of light that uh, is in the eye that lets you like kind of connect to characters right. because it makes them feel like they're right. alive. And in docu- and often if you don't have eye light, they look dead and soulless yep. because it's more akin to reality, you know, um, it, because lights aren't people aren't always looking at light sources. And that's how you you it's get one that. of the reasons. Uh, so they why- found clever ways to do that and in this film i think that he found moments where it's like this is where we need to connect so i'm going to make her hold her you know uh her her torch yep. there totally so that the bounce is the light and we catch her eyes but in these scenes in these shots don't need to care about the eyes 100% i don't need to always be there and that's very tempered because a lot of people are going to be like where's where's the highlight it's like man She's tromping through a cave, you know, like, how am I going to fucking get an eye light? And, and, and like, it, they don't, they're pretty economical about having dialogue scenes in, like, spaces that they can light more traditionally. Like, a lot of the dialogue yeah. happens 
and where they're standing. Yeah, when they start like this is our little oasis spot where there's a little more light. Maybe there's a shaft of sunlight here, and like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so that they can do a better job with it. But when they're just sort of crawling around yelling stuff, it's like, you know, your eye isn't even necessarily attracted to their face. It's like it's right. like that rock you're, up there. You're like, oh, you know, like there's gonna be something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and it really works. Uh, so the other thing about the the story motivated lighting is it's the only way to make these cave goblins as scary as they needed to be. Uh, yeah. you, you mostly have to have them in the dark and somehow a flashlight on them actually does enhance their scariness because they're a little reflective. Um, and they, they actually, I don't know if you read this, but like there was a point in time where they were talking about having sort of like glow in the dark, like bioluminescent components to the goblins. And I think, I think they did that and then they realized that you you needed to see less of them and so they changed it. Probably. Uh, So that again, like this is a storytelling decision and it's a budget cut decision Mm -hmm. but it sells the the monster better. Uh, Yeah, I think of um, uh, Attack of the Block or Attack the Block. Yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. That's interesting. They did the same similar thing with the monsters where they literally don't reflect light. I mean, and I think I think in general we're all a little like Ugh, by anything that doesn't reflect light. Uh, it's just sort of a natural human human mm-hmm. feeling. By the way, you mentioning Battlestar Galactica made me realize Battlestar Galactica is a show that's largely telephoto. Uh, uh, as yes, as yes. is the Shield. Both of those shows that were shot in the same way. Yeah, the TV, especially during this era, went crazy for, and maybe that was it. Maybe that's why film started to do it because we love the documentary style, The Office, all the all the single camera uh, like comedies that were coming out at right. this time. Uh, we're all aping the doc style with handheld camera, Parks and Rec, you know. Um, and because of that, I think they were using longer lenses because people would actively be zooming in um, and stuff like that because it's more like run and gun. Feel You feel like you're more a fly on the wall. Uh, and those longer lenses, I think, evoke that feeling of like not being in the scene as like much. Like a spy camera a little bit. Like it's a, voyeur- it's a yep. voyeuristic camera. Uh, that's, exactly. that's also true. So what does this all add up to? So... On the one hand, I feel like I'm kind of giving both credit and sort of not credit to this director. What I want to definitively say is these decisions are the decisions of a person who knows how to use the medium to tell a story and knows how to focus on the main things, right? And all of these decisions are sort of movie-wide decisions that help smooth over problems that could come up in the audience's mind and gives him the ability to make the movie on the budget that he has – and to allow the other departments to focus on the very narrow, specific look they're going to do, it probably these decisions probably saved art and camera a ton of money, and made them a mm-hmm. lot more creative and limber. And uh, they kept objections from the mind of the audience because again, the the audience likes to object to horror movies, right? Like it's a, it's a thing for people to watch horror movies and laugh at them, right? Ah, <laughs> and this yeah, one yeah. is it that yeah, doesn't yeah. happen because he removed objection points uh with a pretty silly premise really you know like like there's mm-hmm. really no reason we needed cave goblins down there at all uh mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. a movie and that's what he did and it works because he made a lot of choices on the front end to make that decision work and it worked um so you know that i hope has been a good illumination on how 
some of the basic craft elements (laughs) (laughs) of of directing (laughs) help to Mm -hmm. make a movie work. Uh, and how to how this movie got better because the director got kind of out of the way in some ways. So that's it. That's my pitch. You know what? I give you five out of five. Ooh. <laughs> I don't don't know if we're we're supposed the to rank these, but five. you know, I'm making that canon for this one. No, I think that that's very well said. I think there's a lot of uh, work that went in this film that I was like, oh, that's sleepy. That's a little sleepy smartness. Yeah, yeah. You know, like. Um, you know how they're uh, sonically, uh, that's how they like kind of understand yes. their, their yeah, bat they're bat-like, right? And I, know, and I knew that, and this is my second time watching the movie, so I remember it's like the bat-like creatures, and I remember the little Nosferatus, so it's already like vampires in my brain. And then I forgot that at the very top in like Act 1, there's like two or three times like bats come out of yep. shit. And, uh, and you know, there's that one thing where, like, Juno's going, like, one, two, three, but, uh, 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 and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, you're literally talking about, like, a, doing a bit with uh, little Dracula. That's right. You know? That's so, right. So it's like, uh, like, not that that, he gets, the writers get points for, like, doing that. That's not like, oh, that's so choice. But it's just, you start to realize that when you, you know, it's like walking into a house and you realize that, oh, these floorboards are nice. And then you look over and go, oh, that wall is, like, well-made. And then you realize, this is a really right, good exactly. house. <laughs> you know, yes. it's like... Yeah. That's exactly it. That's, what, that's how I felt when I watched this, was like, hey, like, each little piece of this is pretty good and, like, not getting in my way. And then suddenly at the end of the movie, you're like, hey, that was a pretty good movie. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And doesn't get a lot of yeah. I think uh, that is the type. That's why, like, I think another way to think of this podcast sometimes is like Abe and Adam's version of like cult movies that sh- either are or should be cult movies. Yes, you know, should be like, appreciated. Uh, movies that are supposed to be appreciated for what they are, and what they're not is you know everyone like masterpieces none of them are like no, no, masterpieces. No. we don't we don't because like it's easy for me to tell you listen i don't know if you know the godfather is a good movie it's like yeah duh. Mm, the shining right. yeah it's like no it's it's this is a smaller humbler film right. and you're right about the limber i'm a huge fan of like the limberness you're talking about like being nimble as a production team to get the stuff that you need it's it's so important to the work because it's about like it's about keeping the story in view always which means that you need to be focused and making in a world that doesn't have nearly enough control to begin with y- filmmaking you lose control so yep, easily absolutely and so to be able to make decisions like systematic decisions that are like this is our approach right to make sure that you have built in some form of platform of control is so important and then once you have that limitation like in your head and everyone knows and the whole team is like basically seeing the vision of what this type of production is now you can actually get creative like when we talk about artists we're just like jazzing it up or something uh, or just like I don't know. I just kind of feel like, um, like maybe if I tried this and then they go, that was an inspired decision. Uh, that often comes from in the same way that like music, you know, you get the good microphones and like, you go, go to Capitol records and you get the musicians there. And then it's just like, all right, 
today we're just going to play because we already built the scaffolding for you to like be there doing it. We're recording it. It's going to sound great. Just have fun with it. That's as close to like, to me, that's as close to this filmmaking and storytelling is like the artist artifice aspect of it. Cause there's also the creative like influences and in, like what the films are doing and what they're trying to say and what it like, what it says about society. All these things are great things. They're important things, if not the most important. 100%. Uh, but when it's getting down and actually doing the work, it's about being tempered in this kind of forge that uh, is production um, gathering you know, physical production. It's funny how you, uh, I, this is, this, this director piece is, is definitely born of the way that I made movies a cracked. Like I, so like mm-hmm. when you said that at the beginning, it was like, yeah, he's right. Uh, I do make a lot of practical decisions as a director. Uh, mm-hmm. and like, I recognized my own. <laughs> I was like, this guy's doing, uh, this guy's yeah, doing yeah. exactly what I would do if I didn't have enough money. Uh, or if I was limited in money mm-hmm. uh, and I had to make uh, decisions to make it feel artistic, uh, but not actually be that artistic of a decision. Because um, I did that many times, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as did you. Uh, so game recognized game, as they say. Right? Yeah. Neil Marshall. Yeah, he did great. Game yeah, or- yeah. He, he's, he's, he did great. Uh, he, he did, did very great. good. Yeah. And I think that that's why he was so uh, he's so lucrative on TV because TV is you know like eleven pages a day at some point. Right. I, well, I think that's you know? I, again. I think that working with mass quantities of film in a day, uh, working on a schedule like that, makes you good at doing like sort of broad strokes decisions that you know are clear. Like it, it's really good about yes. making you prioritize. Look, I don't have the time to get like the exact cool point of view shot I want of this, but you know what I do have time to do? I can paint all these walls green, and you're going to get the vibe that I want. Uh, yeah, and exactly. look, that's the craft. Most of us, I mean, I yeah. have not yet. I mean, perhaps perhaps fortune will smile on me, but I have not yet been given the fifty million dollars m- movie that is with infinite time. Uh, to make the way I want, you know what I mean. I I haven't been given the the eyes wide shut picture yet, uh, you know. Right. And but if I ever do, hopefully I deliver at that level artistically, uh, because it, but it will be a different experience than what directing has been for me and for you, right? I mean, have you ever had that kind of luxury? No, no, no. I mean, but as they say, you know, even if you have fuck you money, uh, there's a it's still going to be not enough or it's not enough time. It's always going to be a balance, but this type of thinking is what makes the balance work for you as opposed to against you. And I think that that's well said. Well, thanks again, Neil Marshall. Thank you. The descent for uh, a very palatable horror film. And, uh, thanks to my, my forever bud, uh, Abe's for, for being, Hey, thank (laughs) you for calling me out and telling me. Thanks. (laughs) I've also just, I've also decided uh, to just start greeting you with a lot of my tweets. Like you're just gonna start getting <laughs> tweets yeah, tweets that aren't about you, but you're just gonna I've be noticed. A... <laughs> just uh, and also hey uh, buddy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no man, this is good. I like this okay, one. Okay, cool. This one's cool. good. Yeah. Uh, so right. if the audience liked it, they should uh, mosey on over to our small beans Patreon. And uh, mm-hmm. drop a couple of bucks if they'd like, and they will get access to some of our exclusive content that gets uh, released or, early, right? 
if you don't have the scratch, because I know everyone's, you know, dealing with, you know, life right now, uh, feel free to jump on iTunes and give this uh, five stars if you can, or, you know, appropriate number of stars. But the five stars really help Small Beans get out there and get on more eyeballs, which means more people listening to this, which means more content. Uh, and just the myriad of shows that we have, you know, uh, we'll make more. We'll have more. We people. love doing it. That's the that's the yeah. idea, and we, we love, love it. it. This is so much Agreed. fun. Agreed. Until next time. Adios. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!